0: Beloved Congregation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, most of us are able to screen our phone calls. When a phone call comes in, we first look at the screen to see who's calling. And then we rank the importance of the message in accordance with the name displayed. If it is a pesky salesman, then we may not even pick up the phone. Or we will hang up as soon as we realize it. But if it is a call from someone who we are eager to hear from, then we readily pick up the phone, anxious to be connected to that person. The name on the screen of your phone is an introduction to the person who is calling. With one person, we expect good news and meaningful conversation. And with another person, we expect unwelcome news and a less desirable conversation. The Lord God also makes his name known to us. In the Ten Words of the Covenant, he begins by stating, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The question is, what importance do you attach to his name? What comes to mind when you hear God's name? It's not the same for everybody. Some people have learned to fear that name. They have been brought up to know God as an angry God who punishes them when they do wrong. Others have a completely different impression of that name. When they hear God's name being mentioned, then they think of him as a benevolent God, a God who pretty much leaves you alone and who allows you to do whatever you want. As long as you go to church and pray once in a while, then you're okay. We have these different impressions of God, not because God has not properly revealed himself in his word, but because we ourselves have distorted his name and what his name stands for. We want a God that suits us best. But what impression does God want us to have of him when we hear his name? How does he want us to see him? After he introduces himself as the Lord God who delivered his people from the land of Egypt, Then he comes with the Ten Commandments, with the law. You cannot understand the law if you do not understand the lawgiver. Your understanding of the law will be directly tied to your understanding of the lawgiver. If you have a distorted perception of the lawgiver, then you will also have a distorted impression of the law. We just sang together from Psalm 119, stanza 6. Namely, that in God's commandments I take great delight, and thy statutes are the cause of my elation. And we also sang from stanza 42, thy testimonies are forever mine, my joy, which I shall in my heart enshrine. That's what you and I just sang. That is our confession. That is the joy just expressed. The Jews have a joyful day concerning the celebration of the law. It's a very special holiday. It marks the end and the beginning of the annual cycle of the public law readings. They call that festival Simchat Torah. It's a Hebrew phrase which means rejoicing with the law. When a Jew refers to the law, then he usually does not refer just to the Ten Commandments, but to the first five books of Moses. The Lord Jesus did that as well, and therefore so do we. For in the first five books of Moses, you find the basis and the context of the Ten Words of the Covenant. Anyway, in the evening service of that Jewish holiday, the Torah scrolls, that is, the law scrolls, are removed from the Ark, which is an ornamental closet where the Holy Scriptures are kept, and the people would then joyously carry those Torah scrolls around with them, around the sanctuary. The rabbi, together with the people participating, would go around the sanctuary singing traditional chants, and while at the same time performing a joyful dance. In Orthodox synagogues, men and boys alone would be doing the dancing with the very young girls sitting on their father's shoulders as they make their way around the interior of the synagogue. Women and older girls look on from the other side of a petition. In conservative congregations, men and women would all dance together. And in some congregations, the Torah scrolls are carried out into the streets And the dancing may continue as part of the evening. After all these festivities, the last part of Deuteronomy and the first part of Genesis are read. And so it marks the end and the beginning of the reading of the Torah, which would take a whole year to complete. So they would do this once a year. To the Jews, the reading of the law is a joyful event. As a Jewish rabbi put it, we rejoice in the Torah, and the Torah rejoices in us. The Torah too wants to dance, so we become the Torah's dancing feet. With those Jews, there is a great rejoicing because of the law. The question for us is, is that true for us as well? We have much more reason to delight in God's law. For we have the perfect work of Jesus Christ imputed to us. He fulfilled the law. For us, Christ makes all the difference. For that reason, there is also a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The unconverted Jews are still stuck in the Old Testament. We are not. And that has great and wonderful consequences for us. And that should give us all the more reason for joy. I will preach to you about the delight of God's law. And then we will look at it in the first place from an Old Testament perspective, and then secondly from a New Testament perspective. I'll state that once again, I will preach to you about the delight of God's law. First from an Old Testament perspective, secondly from a New Testament perspective. During the morning service, we hear the reading of the law. And we know that we have to hear the reading of the law from a New Testament perspective. And we do. A prime example of that is the fourth commandment, dealing with the specific day of our worship. We are told to have a special day of rest as we observe the Sabbath. The special day of rest is designated as the seventh day, the Saturday. We, as New Testament church, however, have... Our day of rest on the first day of the week, on a Sunday. For it is on the first day of the week that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. It has become a day of rejoicing for us. And that is why the New Testament church, as is clear from various scripture passages, also celebrated it by switching the special day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And that is because we understand the law within the context of the New Testament. And that is also how we hear the law when we hear it being read from the pulpit. But what about the preamble to the law? What about the words in which the Lord God introduces himself to his people, namely that he is the Lord their God, the God of their deliverance? We also have to understand these words from a New Testament perspective. However, however, Before we do so, we have to see the original context of these words. For the old builds on the new. I'm sorry, the new builds on the old. And so we have to take a close look at the initial meaning of the preamble itself. Before the Lord recites the ten words of the covenant, he first refers to that which he had done. He says, I am the Lord who has just rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians. And I have done that in a miraculous way. In order to gain your freedom, you did not have to pick up any sword or any other weapon. You did not have to shed any blood in order to defeat the Egyptian armies. No, I, the Lord God, have single-handedly destroyed the army of Pharaoh." By drowning that whole army in the Red Sea. And therefore you see the great joy that accompanies the reading of the law. For the Lord God first refers to that joyous event. He has proven himself to be their champion, their hero. He has proven himself to be the God of their deliverance. He has rescued them from certain death. And so concerning the law, the Jews see the great joys in these words, the great joy in these words. So did the Old Testament believer. He gives these words of joy so that the Israelites will not tune him out when he comes with the rest of the Ten Commandments. For the Almighty God speaks to Israel so that they will also listen to him. He is the God who loves them. When he speaks, they should pay close attention. There are all kinds of messengers in this world. But there is one messenger you had better not ignore. For listen to who that messenger is. He is the one who has chosen Israel out of all the other nations. He destroyed many of the Egyptians and brought all of them on their knees. And just before they came to Sinai, he had defeated the Amalekites on their behalf as well. In the preamble to the Ten Commandments he reminds them that he has done all that and that he has chosen them as a special nation. When the Israelites heard these words, they did not hear them in the same way that we hear them every Sunday, comfortably sitting in our pews. No, just two months earlier, they were still in Egypt. A lot had happened since that time. They had to leave their former homeland. They They had to leave behind their homes and a lot of their belongings. They were uprooted, and they had just gone through a tumultuous time with the Egyptian army snapping at their heels and with the Amalekites trying to defeat them. It had been quite a roller coaster. And to top it all off, they also had to get used to different foods, and they no longer had plenty of meat available to them as they had before when they were still in Egypt, and water was scarce, and therefore sometimes they were thirsty. They were also told that they were going to go to the promised land to Canaan, but Moses led them in a different direction, away from Canaan, toward Mount Sinai. And so because of all these things, they complained and they murdered, they became angry even. They were so angry at one point that they even wanted to stone Moses. And now here they are at the foot of the mountain. They're certainly not in the right frame of mind and at first they don't quite know what they're doing there either but Moses makes that clear to them he tells them that they are going to meet the Lord their God there the God who made heaven and earth the God who had chosen them the God of their forefathers of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the Lord God is going to speak to them to that murmuring complaining, sinful nation of Israel. And then finally the day comes. What a day! We read in Exodus 19, verse 16 and following, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Brothers and sisters, do you get some inkling of the momentous occasion, of what a momentous occasion that was? How could you ignore such a God? A God who reveals himself in such a dramatic and in such a wonderful way to them. The message is clear. From now on, they had better not be screening their calls when he speaks to them. They had better listen to him. And they had also promised to do that. For we read in Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6 that the people promised to Moses who spoke on behalf of the Lord God. When Moses said, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses spoke these words on behalf of God. And what was their answer? Well, we can read that in Exodus 19, verse 8. It says there, The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. Note well that they responded together. They all did so by lifting up their voices. In this way, they all said, Amen to God's words. It didn't take long, however, for them to forget those words of the Lord. They proved themselves to be incapable of keeping that promise. They kept forgetting what the Lord God had done for them. And so they began to serve other gods. Although the Lord God chose for them, they continued not to choose for him as they had promised to do. They did not make God Number one in their life, as the first commandment tells them to do. The Lord God also knew that they would not be capable of keeping his laws. He knew that he would screen his calls and ignore him, listening instead to other messengers. To messengers that would lead them astray. To messengers who want them to indulge their own fleshly desires. For that reason, the Lord God established the sacrificial and ceremonial laws. They had to be reminded of the law and of the fact that they sin against God's law all the time. They had to be reminded of the fact that they need the Lord their God for everything, including the keeping of the law. Those laws point to the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law. The poor Jews today are still trying to keep the law of God. They want to do so in their own effort. Yet in spite of that, the law is still a delight to the Jews. For they know that in trying to keep the law of God, that they will receive certain earthly benefits, for it will give you stability in your life. God's laws afford you protection. However, the law of God is a lot more about what goes on here on this earth. The law of God was given in order to drive us to Christ. That was the aim already in the Old Testament, and that is the aim still today. It is only in Christ that you can receive the full benefit of the law of God. And therefore, we of all people should be the ones who are rejoicing because of the law. Because of Christ who fulfilled the law. We come to the second point, the New Testament perspective. In first one of chapter ten in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that the Lord Jesus sent his twelve disciples out to bring to have them bring the gospel of salvation. And what is that message? If you read further through chapter 10, you will see that they have to bring quite a radical message. Essentially, the message is that there is no salvation possible except through him. That is clear, for example, from verse 37 of chapter 10, where it says that you must love the Lord Jesus more than your father or your mother. And from verse 39, where the Lord Jesus makes the claim, that he has the lives of every man and every woman in his hands. For he states that whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. Now let me ask you, what does that remind you of? In whose hands were the lives of the Israelites as they left Egypt? They were in God's hands, were they not? And... The Lord God decided that He would deliver them from their oppressors, that He would deliver them from slavery. And so He rescued them. And so brothers and sisters, boys and girls, who do you think of when you think of your deliverance, of your salvation? No doubt, and you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. That now also gives us the new Testament perspective of the Ten Commandments. And so, from a New Testament perspective, we could paraphrase that the Lord Jesus introduces himself as follows I am the Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered you from all your sins and from the slavery to all your sins, from the evil one. And from the New Testament perspective, the first commandment would sound something like this I am the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. You shall have no other saviors aside from me. There are other saviors. They're not real saviors, but they mimic the great savior. That's also what the Israelites encountered when they came into the land of Canaan. Those people served the Baals and the various other local gods who would have you believe that without them you could not have a life. They promised that they would make your living easy. For these, for these gods would give you prosperity. And they would make sure that your crops would not be a failure. And that your wives and your animals would be fruitful. And that natural disasters would not harm you. They had a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses who were involved with every aspect of your life. To make sure that you would be comfortable. The same thing is true today. There are all kinds of powers that be, that also claim that they are the ones who can make your life comfortable. Just listen to the commercials. Just listen to the financial gurus who promise that you will have freedom at the age 55. Just listen to the politicians. Listen to the union bosses. They all promise you the world. But the Lord God said to the Israelites already in the Old Testament that He Is the God of life. If you make him number one in your life. And then you can make a peaceful and comfortable life. Only then. Only if you listen. Only if you trust in him. Will your life be saved. Without him you have no life. He is the one who gives everything to you. And therefore, you have to serve him alone. But this is all the more true in the New Testament. For now we live in a world that is quickly moving towards the final day. For the sins of the world are piling up and piling up. The day is coming soon that God will put an end to it all. And those who put their trust in earthly gods and saviors make two very serious mistakes. In the first place, they are looking at the wrong saviors. And in the second place, they are staring themselves blind on what this earth has to offer them. However, the scriptures teach us that we do not have a lasting city here, but that our citizenship is in heaven. If you stare yourself blind on the comforts that this world will offer you, then you will become sorely disappointed. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. It's no wonder that in Matthew 10 and in the end of Matthew, the Lord Jesus gives his missionary command Go out and preach the gospel, go out and make disciples of all nations. The Lord God wants to introduce himself as the Savior to all those who want to listen to him. He is a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. He is not easily angered. But he also demands obedience from us. He all wants us to make the effort. He wants you to make the effort. That's the kind of God we have. He makes his wonderful promises and they come first. But he also makes his demands. And so we have to have a good balance in that regard. He is merciful, but he is also just. And the people have to know him in that way. They should not have a distorted picture of him. Brothers and sisters, and that includes you young people, you have to introduce that Savior to others. He is the God of your salvation. He is the God of salvation to all who listen to him and who do not hang up on him when he calls. And they hang up on him because they have the wrong picture of God or they are totally rebellious. But now you have to make sure that those with whom you come into contact with your neighbors, that they have the correct picture of him and you must seize every opportunity. What are you doing in that regard? You certainly would do that if you were suddenly rescued by another human being, wouldn't you? Think about it. Suppose you have terminal cancer, and after much searching, you discover the one doctor who is able to save your life. He does whatever he has to do, and then, The cancer is gone. You're cancer free. And he, the doctor, is the only one who knows how to do that. Wouldn't you tell others about that? Wouldn't you send other cancer patients to him? Of course you would. He's the Savior. Unfortunately, there is no such doctor. But there is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great Savior. And in a certain sense, we all have terminal cancer. We're all dead because of our sins. And He is the only one who can save you. Do you tell others about that Savior? He is real. In Matthew 9, we read about the two blind men who were healed by the Lord Jesus. Afterwards, the Lord Jesus says to them sternly that they should not tell anybody about this. But they did. They spread the news about him all over that region from which they came. Of course these men couldn't help themselves. They were full of joy for having been cured from their blindness. Let me ask you, are you also full of joy about having been cured by the Lord Jesus from all your sins? Do you talk to your children about that? Do you talk to your friends about that? He is your only Savior. The Lord Jesus says to you and to me that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light that must reflect the light of God. Are you such a light in this dark world full of death, full of darkness? The people need to hear that name of Jesus time and again and they do they hear it in many different contexts but when they hear that name they often tune him out and do you know why because they don't really know who he is they have never really understood the proper introduction that the Lord Jesus gives to them they don't really know what he stands for And so they hang up on him. They are not interested in what he has to say to them. They screen his call when he hear his name. And they do not answer him or reply to him. They ignore him. You know him, don't you? He is your Savior. He is the Lord your God who saves you from your sin. From the slavery to sin... And from death. And he wants to save all those who listen to him when he calls. He comes with the good news of salvation. He comes with the good news that the law as such does not save us, but that the Lord Jesus does. He is worth knowing. He is worth listening to. And so listen to him when he calls. And teach others to listen to him as well. He comes with a very important message. As a matter of fact, he comes with a message that alone has real significance. If you do not listen to that message, you will not be saved. Amen.